So last week we had the amazing privilege to gaze at our Lord and Savior, to gaze at Jesus Christ as revealed in His Holy Word, learning about Himself. We learned and then we relearned and then we're reminding ourselves of His miraculous incarnation as a man. And it caused us to begin to behold Him yet again first in all that we do and all that we are because Christ is preeminent over all humanity, over all creation, over all the church. Preeminent means He is first. He is supreme. And we asked ourselves the questions, is He first in my heart? And we learned that, that keeping our gaze on Him as, as our preeminent hope that He is our only answer, that this is our foundation as a new church. This is our hope moving forward. This is our hope when we're going to be facing trials, facing tribulations, and even facing false teaching, which is the context of this letter of Colossians that we are studying. We, We focused on the preeminent reality that Jesus is number one, and we asked ourselves, if He is preeminent over all things, why isn't He preeminent in my life? I think we can all ask ourselves that question. Lots of times we're putting things before Christ. So I pray that last week you've been applying that into your life personally, and we did this collectively in our small groups. We were doing a bit of a recalibration, making sure that that Christ is dialed in as the center. And we don't want to just be hearers of God's words, it says in James. We want to be doers We want to be doers of his word, responding with with greater worship, with with greater sacrifice, with greater commitment to the mission of Christ that he has before us, because he is first. So is he first more this week than he was last week? That should be our aim. So as we continue in Colossians today, you can open up to Colossians. Uh, Paul doesn't let up. He continues to herald Christ as first and as best. As last week highlighted, how much we need to fully understand Jesus in his humanity. This week, Paul shows us how crucial it is to behold what Jesus has done and the eternal effects of his work. And so starting in verse 19 today, in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul is going to basically catapult out of the gate with with a brain-melting, awe-inspiring, Christ-exalting statement. Truth that is everlasting, truth that is awe-inspiring, and truth that has results for all eternity. Let's pray, and then I'll read Colossians 1, 19-23. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that uh, you did not leave us in our darkness, but you shone the light of the glory of Christ in our lives, and by our gazing upon him, we are changed. And we gaze at him again today through the pages of your word, your all-sufficient truth to man, how you've revealed yourself to us. You gave us everything we need in your word. It teaches us about Jesus. Apart from this word, we would not know him. And so we thank you for the grace for teaching us about him and the salvation that comes from him and the reconciliation that comes from him that we're going to be focusing on today. Lord, would you press your word into our hearts? We know that your spirit illuminates your word to us, that it convicts us of sin, that your spirit guides us, 
that it comforts us. So today, would your spirit be mightily at work with us? And Lord, may we exalt you as first. We continue on this pursuit of you as first. Help us to lay aside things that get in the way and help us to focus on you, to set our minds on the things that are above. And so we ask for you to continue to speak to us today through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19, starting in verse 19, going all the way down to verse 23. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so we're going to be focusing on Christ again as preeminent. We're going to be focusing on Christ in in the context of reconciliation. And we're going to learn that because Jesus is first and because Jesus is fully God, all things are eternally changed. All things are eternally changed. And our first point that we're going to be focusing on this morning is that Jesus is fully God. That's the statement. That's the awe-inspiring statement that Paul is laying out. Jesus is fully God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I think sometimes we read over that, and yeah, that's a pretty cool statement. We don't really think of the weight that is happening here. So last week we studied the humanity of Jesus and that it's been under attack in the church over the past 2,000 years, over all the world, right in our backyards here in Calgary. His humanity is being attacked. There are thousands, if not millions of people, worshiping false Christs. They're following false teaching. Remember, that's the context of the Colossian letter. They're they're thinking and they're, they're believing a Jesus as their Savior but they are worshiping a lie. There are many false teachers. There are many false religions. In the context of Colossians, it tells us that there's many empty philosophies that are leading people away from Christ, attacking Christ's humanity, and many more that are attacking his deity, his godness, who he is as God. Jesus is God. He is fully God. That's what Paul says here. He's the very place where God was pleased to dwell in all his fullness. In all his fullness. Jesus is fully God. This means that he wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a super spiritual guy. He wasn't just an amazing miracle worker. He wasn't just a great storyteller. He wasn't just a great example. He wasn't a demigod. He wasn't a spiritual emanation. Jesus was and is the eternal God of heaven. He is the second person of the Trinity. And this battle was fought soon after this. 
In 325, uh, faithful Christians had to construct the Nicene Creed to defend Christ in his deity and his humanity. In AD 325, we have the Nicene Creed, and it says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, very important statement, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness, the Greek word is pleroma, all the pleroma of God, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This word fullness speaks of completeness, speaks of a full measure, a total filling of God dwelling within Jesus Christ. So when you think of this fullness, don't think of it as as, as only the amount of fullness of God that a human can contain, okay? Don't think of it that way. That's limiting the fullness of God that is in Christ. Think of it as all of God being poured into all of Jesus. There's nothing left over in the cup as God pours himself into his son. Jesus is perfect. He is fully fulfilled. He is the full self-expression of God in this world. And he is the complete presence of God. He is very God of very God, as it says in the Creed. And so as you marvel at this fullness, marvel also at the fact that in all of his fullness, this fullness coming in Christ was planned, was planned before creation. So before you were even created, before the world was created, the plan was that Christ would come in all of his fullness into history. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, fully God dwelling within a man. That's amazing. And when we hear about this terminology of, of dwelling dwelling within a man, we should immediately be thinking of, of Christ. Remember Christmas, we, we talked about Christ being Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us, God's very dwelling place with man. Long foretold in the prophecies, long anticipated in the sacrifices, long foretold through the use of, of the Jewish tabernacle and the Jewish temple, God's very presence dwelling with his people. Now all in a man. God's very full, very covenant presence would dwell with his people. And this ultimately points us back to the Garden of Eden, where it all began. God was dwelling with man in peace before we sinned, before we were separated from God because of our rebellion, where God's very presence was pleased to dwell with Adam and Eve. No separation. Jesus is this very fullness, this very presence of God. Jesus is fully God. And this dwelling and this full, fullness language is so crucial for us to understand. Because in the days of the Colossians, the false teachers were, were teaching against this. 
They were teaching that you needed a fullness outside of the gospel, a fullness that could be experienced, and then you would finally arrive to where you need to be as a Christian. They believed that this fullness that they were teaching could be imparted by some additional experience or by some kind of self-sacrifice or ascetic practices like the monks would practice hundreds of years later or legalistic observance of, of the laws, returning back to the Jewish rituals. And they were teaching that, that Jesus was not enough. Jesus was not enough to these false teachers. And so their false teaching, like I said last week, was, was Jesus plus some kind of experience, which is false. This is the age-old heresy that continues in our world today. You see it, you see it everywhere. It's, it's trained its way through the, the thousands of years and, and even up to today. You know, there's many uh, pseudo-Christian groups out there that have Jesus as a part of what they believe, but they teach of an additional experience. We also know of cults that, uh, that teach that Jesus is a part, he's a teacher, but, uh, but we need something else as well. They're teaching that, that Jesus is not enough and that we have to have a fuller Experience. You see this language here with Paul. He's really emphasizing the full and the all things. It's a direct attack back on the false teachers. And so we have this today. It's alive and well today. Uh, back in the 1800s, a group of Baptists known as the Millerites, they were later called Adventists, believed in a so-called prophet, uh, William Miller, they believed that he predicted that Jesus was going to return in, in 1843, and he didn't. And then they said, well, it's going to happen next year in 1844, and it didn't happen. And this, this went on and on and on. Um, and so as this continued to not happen, um, they got a little concerned, and so he stepped away. And then another person stepped up as, as the prophet, a lady who was experiencing throughout her life, his childhood, many, many seizures in her life. And she became a part of this movement. And she claimed that in these seizures, she would have them in their camp meetings and, uh, and that angels were speaking to her. And she was claiming to have these fuller, fuller experiences through visions. And she had uh, a few things that she was teaching out of those as so she became kind of the lead teacher in this movement. She would claim that Christ was immediately coming back. Yeah, we should be expecting Christ to come back. That should be our anticipation today. But they were claiming dates that he was coming back, and it still wasn't happening. Um, she would claim that the angels were teaching her about Jewish Sabbath keeping. So they were returning to the law, kind of like what we're seeing here in the Colossians. And also, uh, they claimed that they needed to pursue a life of health. And so, and so what they were doing was returning also back to, to pre-fall laws. And they would, they would talk about stopping the eating of meat. Um, calling the followers to pursue healthy food. And, and the point was not just to have a healthy life. This was meant to cleanse your body and your spirit so you could have a more greater, fuller experience of Him. Extra things that needed to be done. And nobody, I wouldn't claim or, or say that pursuing a healthy life is, is a bad thing. It is. We need to be doing that. And even, even the stopping of eating meat can be a really good thing. Nobody's saying that that's bad, but the problem was is that they were adding it to the gospel, that, that these things are going to bring you closer to the Lord, and you will experience Him in a fuller sense. And this group continues today. Some have moved away from the original teaching, which is good. 
And so there is this ongoing issue in, in, in what is called the pseudo-Christian world. They got a bit of Jesus, but they want to add to it. Out of this movement, though, I just want to share a picture with you here. We, uh, this is meant to be a little bit funny to take the load off, but we are left with some, some things from this movement. So if you've ever ate a bowl of cereal, you can, you can draw all of that back to this movement. Part of having cereal uh, was so that uh, you could have a more healthier life. They were believing this was more healthy for you. And so you have Kellogg's and Post. These were two men who became a part of this movement. And they actually started a sanitarium, which you could go to to start to become healthier so that you could actually have uh, fuller experiences with the Lord. So we're thankful for the cereal. It's awesome. Um, there was also, I'll just mention one more thing um, there was also Wesleyanism. You know, we sing a lot of hymns from, from the Wesleys, and we love that. Some of it's really solid theology. Um, there's this movement, uh, it was called the Holiness Movement, um, and they also teach about second experiences uh, that would draw you closer to the Lord. They would even teach at, at a time that you could reach a place of sinless perfection because of these second experiences. So just a few examples for you, and they, they are here today as well. But what we need to know is that Jesus is fully God. And he is all that we need. We don't need any extra experiences besides the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed through the scriptures. As these false teachers were teaching Jesus plus something else, we must remember that Jesus is enough. He is enough. He is the full expression of God. Very God of er very God. Don't add anything to him. Now, this false teaching can appear in many different forms. This is what uh, a quote from Martin Lloyd Jones false teaching can appear in many different forms, but we can divide them into two main sections. Sometimes it takes the form of a blatant denial of the truth and of the cardinal principles and tenets of the Christian faith, but false teaching does not always take that form. There is another form. Here it is not so much a denial of the faith not so much a contradiction of the cardinal elements as a teaching which, which suggests that something else is required in addition to what we have already believed. So false teaching sometimes can be really evident and sometimes it can be a little sneaky. It can worm its way in. Jesus plus something else. So I know this is elementary to some of us, uh, just this idea that Jesus is fully God, but we've got to keep reminding ourselves this. This is something we need to know as Christians. It's a truth we need to keep learning. Jesus is full, and he is full of God. He is God. And it's so crucial to our right understanding of, of his purpose, his character, his essential life and death for salvation. The whole reason he came, the whole reason that he is the centerpiece of all history is that Jesus is fully God, and he fully completed the work that he came to do. And because he is fully God, it leaves us with three eternal results of, of his godfulness. And this first one we're going to look at is because Jesus is fully God, the curse is fully reversed. Because Jesus is fully God, the curse is fully reversed. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We've laid that foundation. And then in verse 20 it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, the fullness of God in Christ is the very answer for all things in heaven and on earth. It's the answer that we've been waiting for since the beginning, since sin came into the world. Jesus coming to earth as God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited solution for our misery and our pain and our destruction and for our fallen universe. Paul says that it comes through Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us, the one whom God is fully pleased to dwell, and he is the one that provides reconciliation. The only begotten, the firstborn of creation, Back in verse 16, we learned this. He, to whom all things were created through him. He is the creator. And he is the only one that his creation can be reconciled through. He created it, and he's the one that saves it. And this word reconcile, to reconcile, it's also extremely important for us to understand today, and it's really the driving emphasis of this message today in the Scriptures we need to be looking at these words and studying. So just a side note for you when you're at home, when you come across words you don't understand, use the tools to help you understand. You may have a study Bible at home. We highly recommend good study Bibles. Helps you understand. You can be looking at all kinds of resources to help you. But look at the words. See a word like reconcile and don't just be satisfied with glossing over it. Dig into it. This week myself, I had to go back and refresh my mind, what does, what does to reconcile really mean? And in, in its simplest definition, to reconcile is to restore what has been broken. Especially with regard to, to relationship. To make things right. To bring back into fellowship that which was lost. And in, in the context of this passage, it means to restore what was a previously harmonious relationship. And so Paul says that the fullness of God purposed in Christ is to reconcile, to restore to harmony that which was once harmonious. And he does this to himself. That has to be reconciled back to Christ. All things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so we see this result, we see this, this peace, and we see this harmony where there once was hatred, where there once was enmity, where there once was war and strife. And it's all because of the fullness of God on the cross in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so one thing to notice in this word reconcile in verse 20 is that, that Paul could have simply used the Greek word kataluso which is used throughout the New Testament for reconcile. But he wants to use a stronger word. He's thinking of those false teachers again. And he uses the word apokataluso, which really speaks of total, full, complete reconciliation. Friends, our universe is longing to be restored back to its creator. We live in a fallen world all because of our sin all because of the original sin. Remember, before mankind chose to rebel against the Lord and sin, all things were very good. As God created the earth, He kept saying over and over again, He, he saw it and it was good. 
And then as he finished your creation, as he looked at the pinnacle of his, of his creation, as he created image bearers of him, he, he looked at it all and he said, it is very good. All of creation was in perfect, harmonious relationship with God. Everything was perfect until we committed the sin, until we committed cosmic treason against the Lord. And what this did was brought in the curse of sin, the curse of death, and the stain that continued. And it infected the entire universe. When we sinned in the garden, we were not only cursed ourselves and separated from God ourselves, but the whole universe, all of creation, has received the penalty of our sin. Do you believe that? Genesis 3.17, God said that because Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they would no longer be allowed to eat of it. And then he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. What's key there is that it's because of us, because of our sin. That, that harmony that once was is now lost. Adam and Eve were removed from the presence of the holy God. They were exiled out of the garden. Remember, Eve would experience much, much, much pain in, in childbirth. And Adam also had his own curses of, of working hard. By the sweat of his brow, he would eat. And then we also see that this same strife and pain was extended to creation. The Bible tells us in, in Romans 8.22 that the universe, that creation, is groaning, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's because it says that it was subjected to futility because of our sin. We see all around us our universe is experiencing the pain and the suffering because of our sin. For example, the reason I, I stand before you with one arm is a result of sin. It's a result of living in a fallen world, inheriting the effects of the fall. When, when you look at me, or, and especially when I see children look, look at me, something's wrong, right? Something is missing. Something is broken. And it goes with the rest of our lives. The reason that my wife and I, have uh, we only have two children and we're blessed with two children is, is because we can't have any more. We've had many miscarriages. As a result of being in this fallen world, something is broken. It's the reason that Stephen Hawking, who just died, the reason he was paralyzed with his ALS is a fallen world. It's the reason that we have cancer. Our bodies are fallen. It's the reason that that bridge collapsed this week in Florida. We live in a broken world. It's the reason that we have storms. The reason that we have earthquakes and tsunamis. It's the reason because our universe is dying. Our universe is dying because of our sin. I got a picture here, I believe. That's a dying star. Scientists today have confirmed that the energy in the universe is only about half of what it was when it first began. They're measuring 
they're measuring 14 different wavelengths right now, and, and they can confirm that the energy is less. If you were to put a, a multimeter across the universe, there is less energy than there once was. The universe is dying. They're saying in the reports that the uni universe is slowly fading out. And so we see creation is groaning under the weight of our sin, and it is longing to be reconciled to its Savior, longing to be reconciled to Christ. And the only solution for a fully fallen universe is the fullness of God on the cross. I'll say that again. The only solution for a fully fallen universe is the fullness of God on the cross. Have you ever thought about the universe or the world this way? about your sin and the effects of our collective sin. You ever wondered about the extent of your sin? You ever look at the world in despair? You, you throw your hands up in despair. Sometimes I throw my, my hand up in despair. Wondering what is going on? How can we fix this? Things just seem to be getting worse and worse. And if you have a good theology, you understand why things are getting worse and worse. It's going to be getting worse and worse. But, but it's a struggle. And I know you probably feel the same. Perhaps you work with people that, that uh, they wear their depravity very much on their sleeve. And it's often hard to work with them. Perhaps you, you look at the wars and you look at the issues on, on the news. You see all the violence. You see all the strife. And you wonder, will it ever end? Perhaps you see the heartache and, and the pain and the suffering that is happening in your own life. And you wonder what God is doing. Perhaps you're waiting for a diagnosis. Perhaps you're suffering from an ailment. Perhaps you're wondering if you'll ever have children. Perhaps you're experiencing the pain of, of the death of a loved one. Perhaps you've experienced divorce and separation in your life, in your parents' life. Perhaps you've experienced abandonment. You name it. The fallen world is a hard place to live. And the only solution for a fully fallen universe is the fullness of God on the cross. Christ made peace by the blood on his cross. His bloody death reconciles the universe back to him. Romans 8.21 tells us that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So since the beginning of our sin, like I said, God has been planning to come in all of his fullness to restore his creation back to himself to fully reverse the curse. And we see in Christ's death that it inaugurated all this. It began this. As Christ cried from the cross, it is finished. It was finished. And it will be finished. We live in, in the already not yet. This has already taken place. It is finished, but it has not been consummated yet. It's when he returns that it'll be fully brought together, fully reversing the curse his work on the cross is final. It has everlasting ramifications in the whole universe. So as we're looking at the universe, as we're seeing it decaying around us, there will be a day. There will be a day of reckoning and a day of restoration. There will be a day when it will all be made new. When Christ returns at the end of history, after he's judged the living 
and the dead. After he casts Satan and his demons into the lake of fire, and he destroys all of the fallen creation, Revelations 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We were just singing about that. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is going back to the garden, being fully restored. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then get this in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The curse will be fully reversed. So friends, you and I can face, we can face the hardest things that can be thrown at us in this universe, in our lives, because Christ is making all things new. He's making all things new, and He will make all things new. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. Whatever your experience today will be summed up in Jesus Christ, and we need not fear or be anxious, but trust in Him and in Him alone and what He's doing. And so we see here that all things in heaven on earth are, are being fully reconciled in the fullness of God in Christ, and then Paul narrows his focus Onto the pinnacle of his creation, he focuses in on us, so not just the rest of creation. Now, what we were created on that, on that last sixth day, looking at his image bearers, and he teaches us, because Jesus is fully God, man is fully reconciled. Because Jesus is fully God, man is fully reconciled. Starting in verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So as much as this original sin has infected the entire universe, we see a universal effect that this original sin has infected the totality of mankind. We are all born in sin. We all inherit Adam's sin. And we all continue in our sin. And Paul says, you and you, speaking about the church at Colossae, speaking about us today, speaking to all Christians from all time, you who were once alienated. alienated. Alienated really means to be a foreigner in a country, to be a stranger, a non-citizen of that country. And in this context, uh, it's one who doesn't have the qualifications to be there. You don't have that passport. You're not a citizen. You're unworthy to be a citizen. You were alienated. Paul reminded us earlier, remember? last week, that we were of a different domain. We were a, a domain of darkness. Not only were we aliens, he said that we were hostile. We were hostile in our minds, meaning that we weren't just foreigners, but we were enemies. 
We were enemies of God, those who opposed the kingdom of God, those who were at war with God. We were rebels against his kingdom. We were haters of God. And then he says, doing evil deeds. That's what rebels, that's what enemies do. Evil deeds against the kingdom. So Paul is reminding us, friends, of our, of our sinful unworthiness. That you and I in our flesh, we oppose the kingdom of God. Apart from the grace of God, we were enemies. We were serving a different king. We were serving Satan in our rebellion. We were haters of God. We were living in our sin and pursuing sin. He wants to remind that church at Colossae to remember where you come from. Remember where you came from. Remember what you have done. Remember your depravity. Remember your sinfulness. Remember where you were headed. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's where you were going. And Paul's teaching that those who are unrepentant of sin, we're storing up God's wrath against us for that final day of judgment as we walk in unrepentance. Our God is holy and he is just and he will have justice. So friends, remember your depravity. Remember your lostness. Remember your condition. Remember the direction of your life before the grace of Christ came into your life. It's a good thing to do. One of my favorite worship songs has some lyrics. I think we're going to put it up here. Uh, it's called All I Have is Christ. I'll just read it to you. It says this so clearly. It says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Friends, we need to remember our tragic condition before the grace of God. It's good to remember it. Sometimes we get so wrapped up with the here and the now and the small things. We're so dialed in on this little narrow focus, we forget the bigger picture. We forget to look back on our life and see what Christ has done for us. So take a step back. Look at how Christ has changed you from who you were. It's an amazing thing to think about what Christ has done for you. So I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to do that this week to recall what Christ has done, who you were, where you were going in our small groups this week. We're going to be doing that as well. And some brave people stand up and share the story of Christ in their life. Share with us what Christ has done, what he has saved you from. But we're not going to stay there. We're going to proclaim the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, heralding that truth to one another because it's really a story about him. Our testimony is part of us who we were, but it's about him. And this is how Paul puts it. In verse 21, he says, And you who once were, so we were so utterly sinful, but it says this, he has now. So I would underline those two things in your Bible. I don't know how you do that on your digital Bible, but try to underline that. Who once were, he has now. 
You were once going this way, but now he has reconciled you in his body and flesh by his death. For what reason? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He has now. This reminds me of a few other verses in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's not an exhaustive list, but it's a good list. But then it says this in verse 11, and such were some of you. You see that transformation that happened there? The Corinthian people, this was typical of who they were, but they have been changed. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 2, 12 to 14. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, that's what we're talking about. To be separate, separated is to be unreconciled. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Glorious. I love how the scripture tells us who we were, but it never leaves us there. If you are a Christian, God always reminds you who you've become. And that same reconciliation that extends to the, the edges of all creation has been extended to us. In Christ's body of flesh, it says, by his death. You and I are no longer enemies of God anymore. All the guilt all the penalty, all the judgment that was due to us is now on Christ. And as much as the world is, is trying to save themselves, and as much as you and I are prone to trying to reconcile ourselves to God, we can't reconcile anything. We can't do it. Christ had to come, and Jesus came because we couldn't reconcile ourselves. Christ had to come and exchange his life for ours, bringing peace bringing peace between us and God. The debt of sin was paid. And we have been brought back into right relationship with the Lord. Remember when Jesus died, what happened in the temple? The veil was torn in two, signifying that we have bold access to the Father. There is no separation now. We come to the throne room in Christ. He presents us to the Lord. We are truly reconciled in his flesh and his body. And the only way that you can even ever be in God's presence is through the righteous covering of Jesus Christ. It says here that he presents us, he presents us holy, blameless, above reproach before him. How many people here this morning are feeling holy, blameless, and above reproach? I know I'm not. I know that doesn't sound like you. That doesn't sound like me. I know the dirtiness that I have, the stain and the shame that I have brought to the name of Christ through my life. I know my rebellion. I know my darkest thoughts and my darkest actions. And I know that I continue to sin. 
And yet Christ presents me holy. That is the beauty of biblical Christianity. In light of a world that wants to work its way to the Lord, we understand by reading through the pages of Scripture that we couldn't do it. Christ had to do it for us. So how can I be presented as holy, as blameless, as above reproach before the Lord? And the key is reconciliation. Reconciliation, which leads to justification. Actually, the other way around. Justification leads to reconciliation. So not only am I brought back into the presence of God, I am forgiven. I am cleansed of all of my unrighteousness. And more than that, I am covered in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. I am covered by him. I am found in him. When Jesus saved me, he not only forgave me, but he gave me, he gave me his righteousness. Even when you continue to fall into temptation, you have Christ's righteousness upon you. Do you remember back in verse 12 when we were walking through this, we talked again about Christ qualifying us for the kingdom. The qualifications are on Christ, not on you. He is the one that qualifies you. This is the exact same truth we're talking about here. The qualifications to be reconciled to God is holiness, blamelessness, above reproach character, sinless perfection of which we are not. I needed the righteousness of another. You needed the righteousness of another. You and I needed the righteousness of Christ that is declared upon us. We call this justification, covering us with his declared, perfect, righteous holiness. It's a legal standing before God. It's not something that you practice. It's something you want to be moving in your practice. It's something in position. He has declared you righteous. It's something that can never be taken away. So picture it like this. You're sitting in a courthouse, and, and you've committed some, some grievous crimes, and, and the sentence is death, and you are guilty. You know that you are guilty. And then you have a judge, and he's looking at you, and he comes down from his throne, and he grabs the keys of, of your shackles, of your handcuffs, and he takes off his robe, and he puts it on you. He undoes your shackles. And then he slams his mallet on the table and declares you not guilty. And more than that, he takes your place. He takes the guilt for you. This is justification. The judge has declared you holy when you are not. He takes the sentence and he sets you free. He declares you free. He declares you righteous, innocent, blameless, holy, above reproach. This is what Christ has done for you. Instead of presenting you as a sinner, he presents you as one who has been brought near. Instead of being presented guilty, he presents you without blemish. Instead of presenting you as one who is accused, he presents you with unimpeachable character. That's what above reproach means. No one can lay a charge against you because Christ is covering you. And these are all attributes of Jesus Christ. These are all him. So when, the God, when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's our hope. That's the gospel, that we are found in him. And God looks at you and he sees Christ. And we are at peace 
with the Lord. You were no longer an enemy. You were no longer at war. You were at peace. Now, you may feel like I do sometimes, far too often. I fall back into a faulty way of thinking, a fleshly way of thinking, and I, and I even would listen to the voice of the accuser. Satan wants to accuse us, and he wants to proclaim to us, you are guilty when you're not. He wants you to forget the righteousness of God that is applied to your life. He wants you to identify with your sin rather than to identify with Jesus Christ. And we begin to confuse our identity. We begin to identify with the world, with our own flesh, forgetting that it was all paid for through Jesus Christ. And I know we all deal with this at some times. We all get lost in our sin again. And instead of embracing the grace of, of God, instead of embracing the Holy Spirit's conviction, we often feel unworthy to come to the Lord. Instead of focusing our eyes on the, the righteousness of Christ, we focus on the sin at hand and we, and we can fall into despair. Sometimes we feel so guilty that we don't even want to run back to the arms of Christ when He stands ready and willing to forgive you. We forget to remember that Christ's reconciling presence never leaves us. He's never far off. You know, in your sin, you often feel like God is far away. He hasn't gone anywhere. You have. So friends, we need to remember, God knew exactly what we needed, and that's why he sent his son, to give us a new identity, a new standing before him. This can never be taken away from you. If you have Christ covering a righteousness, it can never be taken away. His declaration remains forever. One theologian used to say it like this, if God ever chose to love you, he will always love you. God doesn't change his mind. If you are his, you are his forever. And Paul confirms this in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. Friends, some people take this as a frightening verse. The if clause here, they're, they're thinking, well, this is somehow subject to my, my, my obedience. But what Paul is giving us here is simply a measuring rod, not a command. It's, to, it's not a command to keep your salvation as if we ever could. Friends, this, this clause, this if clause doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. The if indeed is proclaiming the truth that those who are truly saved are truly saved and that they will remain truly saved. Those who are forever reconciled will be forever reconciled. And what he's saying here is that the proof is in the pudding. I don't know where we get that saying from. Does that have to do with jello or something? But the proof is in the pudding. The proof will be in our life, right? There will be evidence of his change, ongoing change in our life. Those who were truly reconciled will continue to believe and trust in Jesus. They will be stable. They will be steadfast, not shifting. Remember that these are, these are measurements of overall character. Even when you look at the qualifications for an elder, that's an overall character. That means that that person could stumble in, some, in one of those areas, but it's not an overall picture characteristic of their life. And so this is also a picture of that overall character. It's a measure of the character and the direction of our life. That the Christian who was truly saved by the gospel will be growing in holy character. 
that even through the hard times, they will ultimately trust the Lord. Even though it's not easy, even though you can be afraid, you will ultimately trust the Lord. You'll be brought back into that trusting experience. You will be steadfast. You will press on towards the goal. Even though we have short moments of failure, we will not shift from the hope. We will not fall away from the truth. Even though sometimes we believe lies, we believe the accuser, the Christian will continue because Jesus is faithful. He will surely do it. It means that the, that the Christian remains faithful because the one who is faithful will take us to the end. One theologian says it's like being on a boat. You're on the Christian boat. When you are saved, you are on a boat, and it's going in a direction. Now, you may slip and fall on the boat, but you're not going to fall off the boat. The boat keeps moving forward. God is faithful. He will pick you up. He will surely do it. So the question is, are you on the boat? Have you turned from your sin and trusted the Lord? Have you run, have you run into his reconciling arms? Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin. Trust him. Believe in him. Know that your sin is worthy of eternal punishment, but know this, that Christ's grace is greater and he offers it to you. And you can have full reconciliation. You can have full peace in him. Because Jesus is fully God, the curse is fully reversed, man is fully reconciled. And then by testimony of Paul's life here in ministry at the end, my plans are fully redirected. My plans are fully redirected. Verse 23b of which I, Paul, became a minister. We have to remember that the man writing this letter, the Apostle Paul himself, he was the greatest persecutor against the church. Remember, he approved of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And it says in Acts, 1, or Acts 8, verses 1 and 3, that, that Saul approved of his persecution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then in verse 3, but, but Saul, who was Paul, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's the man who's writing this book to us right now. He was the greatest persecutor of the church. He hated the church. But then on the road to Damascus, God intervened and transformed him. Paul's life plans were fully redirected by the Lord. He was reconciled, transformed into a minister of the gospel. He led three missionary journeys, planted between 14 and 20 churches that we know of. He wrote 14 of the 27 New Testament books. Half of the book of Acts was written about him. What a glorious transformation to, to look at in Scripture. Upon full reconciliation with God, Paul fully submitted to God's plans. He fully submitted to be used as a lifelong minister of the gospel, and he himself was persecuted. He himself was stoned. He himself was at the point of death many times because of the gospel, because he was a minister of reconciliation. And so how about us? How about you? That same call that's on Paul's life is called on you. We are all to be ministers 
a part of the ministry of reconciliation. We've all been given this ministry. That is one of the primary purposes of our life. We're a church that believes this. We believe in, in pursuing the Lord's gospel into the ends of the earth. And so are you in? Are you in on that? And how is that folding itself out in your life this week? Would those around you know that you are a minister of the gospel? Is it spilling out of you? Are you sharing it with the world? We see this testimony of Paul's life. He gave his life to it, and we're called to do the same. So embrace that full reconciliation. Embrace that call that is on your life. Remember that you have been saved. Remember what you've been saved to. When God reconciles you, he plans to redirect your path. That's what repentance is all about. You're going one way, God changes you, and you're going the other way towards him. Turn away from the world. Let's turn away from ourselves. Let's turn towards the ministry that God has called us to. Let's join him on his mission. And let's remember, let's remember that this is induced by grace. This is empowered by the Spirit. This is motivated by the gospel. We need to remember that we were reconciled and that motivates us and compels us to follow. Jesus is about the business of reconciling his creation back to himself. Because Jesus is fully God, the curse is fully reversed. Man is fully reconciled and my plans are fully redirected.